0: Good morning. We are continuing our series, A Matter of Hope. And I would begin by saying this. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Shall I say it again? <clears throat> are you all have the image of the little red slippers? You know, it's not just a line in The Wizard of Oz that Dorothy said. We've all been there, have we not? Where you, you just have that feeling. And you're thinking it. If not, you're saying like Maybe when you came home from college... After a long semester, or maybe more, after a time in the military and you thought, there is no place like home. Or maybe you're returning from a mission trip and you're not even home yet, but you just get to the States. Where they all speak your language and you're thinking, there's no place like home. Or maybe for you it was after an extended hospital stay. It was much more extended than you thought. And you finally are well enough to go home and that crossed your mind, there's no place like home. Or maybe it's a trip. Or you've been away from your family. When you got home and you got the hug with those little bitty arms around your neck. Or maybe you sat down at home cooking. Or maybe you just laid out backwards under your bed and thought to yourself, there is no place like home. We've all been there, haven't we? And had that feeling. Because there's no place like home. Before we jump in the text, I want to ask a question about your home. Simply this, how many homes have you lived in? Now think about that. How many homes have you lived in? And what constitute lived in to say uh, at least two months? So if you need to talk to your neighbor, uh, maybe uh, take uh, your fingers out, maybe uh, uh, see how many homes have you lived in. For some of you, you've lived in the same place all your life. And so that's easy. Like me, I I grew up in the same house. Um, My parents, when I uh, was 18, left for college. My parents did finally move. After seeing i have been married for a couple of years, they moved across the street. How's that? Although Celia, her dad was a minister and they moved all over. Some of you in the military family. And you know what that's like. So if you give me enough time now, have you counted? Wanna ask, how many of you less than five? Raise your hand. How many houses have you lived in? Less than five. Okay, it's good. Be proud of that. Okay. How many of you five to ten? Five to ten houses. A little bit more in that number, five to ten. How about 10 to 20? Any of you? Wow, several. Okay. How about more than 20? Yeah. We got a word for people like you, right? It's like Well, even as I said, you're thinking about some of the houses you lived in. Maybe the first home. Some that were quick. Some that were long. Maybe a lot of memories there. Home is the anchor for our souls. Home is like the rudder for the ship of life. There is no place like home. You know, in baseball, we call it home base. We start there, and we hope to come back. We want to end there. That's our goal. We use the phrase home free, or home at last, or we feel at home, or we'll say home sweet home, or welcome home. When you think about it, we've got a place to call home that just conjures up so many good feelings. Positive feelings, security. So where's your home? We're going to let some passages, some uh, important topics in the book of 1 Peter. And we're learning about hope. That's the series of the lesson, the matter of hope. And and Peter opens the chapter talking about that. Because in the late uh, AD 60s, there was a difficult time for those who wore the name of Christ. Nero's persecution of Christians was in full force. And many who wore the name of Jesus were on the run. They had to leave home, had to leave their job, had to leave everything. They were being persecuted. So Peter writes to remind them of their true home. And he uses that word, he uses that kind of phrase, because there's great hope when you're home. Look at the screen at Philippians 3, verse 20. Paul wrote this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that dovetails exactly with where we studied last week when Peter reminded us in the first chapter that we have a living hope. His name is Jesus Christ. And someday He's going to take us home. Home to where we belong. In the first chapter of 1 Peter, Peter uh, Peter talks about where our home is. Look look at uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. You may want to have your Bibles open because we're going to look at several passages here. Or if it's better for you, you can see it on the screen. But look in chapter 1, verses 3 again. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance is kept in heaven. So if you look at your study guide there, you've got some questions there. And the first one is simply this. Where is home? Where is your home? See, if someone were to ask you, Where's your hometown? Where'd you grow up? Maybe like me, you can just say one city. But if you moved around a lot, you may not like to be asked that question. Because you can't just say, well, this is my home. Because you lived in so many different places. It's hard to say just one city. But for all of us, we have a couple of answers at least to where is home. The first is simply this. It's earth. This is our temporary home. And that's true for all of us. And Jesus came to be with us. Remember how John opens his gospel and talking about Jesus? In John chapter 1 and verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Made His dwelling among us. I've always liked the way the message paraphrases verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood." Don't you like that he moved into the neighborhood? That's what Jesus did. He came to live amongst us to be real, to set an example of how to live in this fallen world. And according to 1 Peter, Christians while on earth, and he's going to use this phrase, this terminology often, we're strangers. We're aliens. We don't belong here. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live as strangers here in reverent fear. Strangers. The way that it's written in the original language, it means during your time of stay. The English Standard Version renders that last part conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You're a stranger. You're exiled. This is how you live. And at times, we do feel like an outsider. Not just because we wear the name of Christ. We've all been in a situation where you feel like the fifth wheel. Where you're like the outsider. Like you don't belong. Planet Fitness has built a company based on this. This is their model, isn't it? I mean, the no judgment zone. Because we can all feel out of place to go into a gym full of bodybuilders. And they know what it's all about. we're like, I can't go there. And they know that. We don't want to feel out of place. And that's why their business is booming. Or maybe you've been in a a dinner situation where you're surrounded by maybe six or seven people and you know pretty quickly they're intelligent, they're smart people, and you're watching the conversation kind of like a ping-pong match and you just don't even have anything to contribute. Maybe you feel so out of place like a stranger. But at times uncomfortableness comes when we're surrounded by people who are far away from God. You ever been in a situation like that? When you're just observing what's going on, you think, I'm the only one. These people are so not like me. So we all know what it's like to be in that kind of experience. We're in a crowd, but maybe we're alone. We feel alone, surrounded by people, and yet we do feel out of place, Like we don't belong there. Maybe for you, it's family. Maybe it's your extended family. Even to go to reunion, when you do, you just feel like the only thing you have in common is your last name. The Bible talks often about this feeling, this sense, this awareness of not being at home, of being a stranger, of being an alien, of being a foreigner. Like the line in the song, this world is not my home. Remember what it says next? Next. Just to passing through. We all feel like that sometime. So where's your home? Well, on earth it's temporary, but what we know, the Bible tells us, and Peter is mentioning here, our ultimate home is heaven. Look at the screen at Hebrews 13, verse 14. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. He's reminding us of what we already know. This earth is temporary. This home, this world, it's been corrupted, it's broken, it's fallen, it's not what it was created to be. And because of the brokenness, Jesus invites us to a life in Him. A life that's renewed, a life that's restored. It's back to the wholeness, is the way He designed it to be. One day we're going to receive a glorified body and be with Him forever in heaven. But in the meantime, we live in this life. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1. Paul says, now we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And then look at verse 8. He says, we're confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So heaven will be home, at home with the Lord. And until then, we live in this temporary thing called home, this earth, this life. I think I may have shared the story with you before, but when my son, Jake, was preschooler, he was getting some immunizations, and that's never an easy time for the child or the parent. This is one of those where he knew, he was old enough to know what was going on. Not like they're an infant and they don't know it's coming. You know, you grimace as the parent with that, but they don't know, they do know, but they don't know it's coming. But there's something about when they get a couple of years and they know. They know it's compared to ever done anything where you don't tell them, you just get in the car and go. And then they recognized the building, you know. Jake was young, and he was getting the. it was one of those, I can't remember which one, but it was one of those where it was like part one, and you got the booster. And the nurse was explaining, They're going to come back at this age, you will get the second one. And Jake heard that. Through the tears, through the pain, I remember all of that. But I remember his words, because he asked the question, are you saying i got to get another one of these? You know, so we explained that. And Jake just looked at us and said, Well, maybe the Lord will come before then. (laughs) And I thought, okay. This world is not my home. It's temporary. So in some ways, maybe Jake had it right. Heaven has a way of transforming whatever difficulty, whatever pain we're in the middle of. Having a home in heaven puts it in perspective in heaven, all of that is gone. Whatever your affliction is, whatever your struggle, whatever your pain, whatever your difficulty. One of the passages that we all love, we may not know it's in Revelation 21.4, but we know these words. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That's home. That's our inheritance. That's where the Christian life, the Christian will live for eternity. One author I was reading said it like this. If you're a Christian, then life in this world is the closest you will ever get to experiencing hell. Whatever your pain, whatever your suffering, that's as close as you'll get. And then it goes on to say, but if you aren't a Christian, then this world is the closest you'll ever get to experiencing heaven. I think we need to know that and think about that. So where's your hope? Well, here's the second question. How can we have hope? That's really what the whole book of 1 Peter is about. It's a hopeful book. So how can we have hope? Well, Peter reminds us that first, our hope is in the living Christ. It is in Jesus Christ. We have this living hope. That's our identity. That is who we are. That helps us as we go through the difficulties of this life. Look at the next chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. You may want to just open your Bibles there because we're going to at several verses back to back here. Maybe may be easier on the screen, but just open your Bibles and kind of follow along here. Verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Now again, remember who Peter is writing to here. These Christians who've been scattered. They've been run out of their homes. They're running for their lives. And the phrase where he says, a people belonging to God, some translations say God's special possession. Now, if you're from a Jewish background, if you were a Christian but had a Jewish background, when you heard those words, a people belonging to God, God's own special possession, that would ring a bell to you because you knew what that meant, being a Jew. God's special people. So it's a reference back to the Old Testament. But he's also explaining that's true for the Gentiles as well. Not just for the Jews. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you belong to him, then you are God's special people. Doesn't matter your past, doesn't matter your family, your bloodline, doesn't matter your sin. It's who you are in Christ. If you're constantly being reminded of your past, your mistakes, that is not God reminding you. That is Satan reminding you. God is more aware and concerned with who you are now and where you're going, going to heaven with him. That's his goal. God's not the one bringing up your past. Look at the next verse, verse 10. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is kind of a throwback from the verse before about being called out of darkness and into light. That too is an allusion back to the Old Testament. When you accept Christ, you now have this identity. You are a part of His family. You wear His name. Your family on earth may be dysfunctional. It may cause you all kinds of grief. It may be discouraging. Or you may not have a family. But spiritually, you have the family of God. And through that, look what he says you have there. You have this grace... And mercy. So you can live a life that communicates, my home is in heaven. Especially in the difficulties. But it begins with knowing who Jesus is. The living hope. And it continues with how to live in Christ. And so he gives some instructions. You know, I think we can all relate to when we are given instructions that are clear. You know, like, like to know what's expected of us. Or if there are directions you're trying to go somewhere when it's easy to read, roads are marked. We like that. It bothers us when it's not clear. We don't know what's expected. We're not sure where to go. Well, Peter, I think, gives some very clear instructions here. Some very simple instructions how to live with hope. He starts in verse 11, 1 Peter 2, 11. Dear friends, I urge you, and here's those words again, as aliens and strangers in this world... To abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. With that mindset now, realizing I'm a foreigner, I'm an alien, I don't belong here. this world is not my home, then live like it. Specifically, it says, abstain from sinful desires. Avoid earthly lusts. Think how much that starts with just guarding your mind. What you take in. What you're watching, not just TVs and and movies, it could be social media, it could be the news, it could be what you read, it could be the conversations that you have. Guard your mind, abstain from sin. Look at verse 12. He continues Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. So part of it is abstaining, not doing. But it's not just that and sit on your hands and the Lord comes back. You live good lives. Now again, we need to remember the people who heard this first, they're not at home. They had to run away from their home. They literally are aliens, foreigners. They've been slandered. They've been persecuted. They've been marginalized. Running for their lives. And he tells them, okay, you do good. You want to know how to live? You know how to make it live good lives. So let me ask you a few questions about how you live your life in a real practical way. How do you respond when the server messes up your order? Or if it takes a while to get there? How do you treat the people that everyone else overlooks? Or even more, how do you treat someone When you've been treated unfairly by them, live such good lives. All of these are opportunities, not just to avoid sinful desires, but to do good, to be proactive, to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile so many times, so many moments, to bring a taste of heaven on earth, to be that ray of sunshine. To be patient in an impatient world. And one way he suggests that we do this, to show people that God is living in us, that we have this living hope, is do good deeds. Live a good life. In the early years of Christianity, there were two plagues that bombarded the Roman Empire. And both of them were Devastating. AD 165 was one, and the other one was AD 251. Both of them just did away with one-third of the Roman Empire. Just devastating. Most citizens tried to avoid contact with those who were sick. I was reading through that, and I thought, it makes sense. You know, with just the flu that we've got going on and some of these other illnesses... You know, we hear more talk about washing your hands and staying at home. And and we don't want to go to where we know that that is. And so we do all these measures to do that because we don't want to become infected by it. We don't want to bring that germ home. So we're so aware of that. Well, these plagues were terrible times. Those especially who were poor had so few resources. They just had to deal with it the people would literally take those who were infected, those who were sick and about to die, and just take them out of their homes and leave them on the street on the gutter. And the thought there was like just to remove the illness from the house and at least those who had not yet been infected might be saved. That was the normal behavior. They wanted sickness out of the house. They're trying to contain it to keep the sickness out. Now, the wealthy people didn't do that because the wealthy had resources They were able to... Some of them had a second home. And so they would go to their second home or had the resources to go and start a second home and get out of the place that had the illness. But not everyone left. When the poor were tossing out the sick, when the rich were leaving town, history tells us the Christians stayed. The Christians stayed and helped those who were ill... Because they understood their identity in Christ. They understood where their home was. And that allowed them to love the people that no one else would. And I can only imagine as they're helping these people, they didn't even know. They had to be wondering, who is this Jesus that you talk about every day? Historian William Durant wrote about it. He said this, Never had the world seen such a dispensation of alms as was now organized by the church. She helped widows, orphans, the sick, prisoners, and victims of natural catastrophes. She frequently intervened to protect the lower orders from unusual exploitation. I read about that and I thought, there was a time in history when, for the church, that was the norm. That's who we were. And I believe it can be that way again. See, centuries ago, Christians changed the world by how they served. When everybody else was running away... They ran in. They were the first responders. It doesn't have to be something heroic necessarily. It could be something small, like buying someone's lunch, or maybe sitting with a coworker who's sick in the hospital. Maybe doing a neighbor, uh, doing a, a chore for a neighbor, mowing their grass or rolling their garbage can out when when they cannot. Just being there for them. Maybe it's praying for your boss or your coworker who's causing so much trouble at work. Maybe it's praying for your family member. Ask God to bless them. You serve them. You do good. Live such holy lives, he says. Because people notice. They notice. Look at the next instruction, verse 13 and 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. It's one of those passages that's hard sometimes for us to live out because it's telling us to submit to those in authority, whether we voted for them or not, whether they're in our party or not, whether we agree with their policies or not. You submit to them and you honor at least the office. You realize God put them there, those in authority. Look at verse 15 and 6 and it continues. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. So we silence our critics by serving others. When he talks about living a life of freedom, he's not talking about permissiveness. Because permissiveness sees grace as a license to sin. God will forgive me. I can do whatever I want. That's not what he's talking about here. He said, live a life of freedom, a distinctive life, opportunities to serve, not out of duty, but devotion. Not out of obligation, but a demonstration that we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. And then this how-to list that he gives in these verses, I think, concludes in verse 17. Notice what he says. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. I happen to think it's really bold for Peter to write this. Especially that last phrase. Honor the king. If you were in that original audience, heard that being read or maybe reading it thinking, well, that's got to be a misprint. My ears must be deceiving me. Did he just say that? Honor the king? Does Peter know who he's talking about? This is Nero. What if it was your family member that he had burned alive at the stake to illuminate his garden? We talked about that last week. Honor the king. But it's not a misprint. You show honor to him because of the leadership role that he's been entrusted with. Acts 5 teaches us that we are to obey our earthly leaders except when it goes against God's commands. And Peter makes it really clear here to his readers that you live a long, strong life, a bold life, a faith-filled life in the, these communities where you may be the only one who wears the name of Jesus. They may not know who he is or understand what he's about, but they can see your actions. And he paints the pictures here again. He's not denying that they are exiles. They're foreigners. They're strangers. They don't belong there. And our response then should not be rebellion rebellion or lashing back or hatred or finger pointing or making excuses. No, he says we should be known for our genuine love, our gracious words, a respectful spirit, a bold faith. We trust that God is able. In the middle of the difficulties, in the middle of the pain, whatever is going on, our hope is alive. And his name is Jesus. See, when we see where our home is, we talked about that and how we live. Here's the next question. Well, why? Why do we live such a counter-cultural existence? Well, the answer is found in the same chapter just a few verses later. Look in verses 21 through 24. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 23, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You want to know how you do it? You do it the way Jesus did it. Jesus suffered when he didn't deserve it. And he reminds us that by his wounds, we are healed. His life was motivated by love. Everything he did was motivated by love. Whether he was encouraging the one who was immoral to change their ways, or feeding the hungry crowd, or touching the leper, or healing the disabled. Whether he was remaining silent before the governor. When all these accusations were flying at him and he could have answered every one of them. or remaining on the cross when He had the power to come down. He had the access to call 10,000 angels. Jesus practiced what He preached. We don't repay evil for evil. Everybody else is doing that. Everybody's thinking that. But you're a stranger. You're a foreign. You're an alien. You don't play that game. We live like Jesus lived. We love like Jesus loved. We do good. Earlier I asked you how many homes you had. Do you remember your number? May I encourage you to add one? Because we're not home yet. Jesus reminded us just before he left that he's going to prepare a place for us. That's our home. This is just temporary. Folks, we just checked into a long-term hotel room. So don't get too comfortable because we're not home yet and what he wants to know is if you believe that he is the son of god have you confessed that to others have your sins been washed away in baptism have you received the gift of the holy spirit have you been made new a new creation are you ready to go home not this home our ultimate home That's our invitation. If that's what you need, this song is to encourage you. Or if we can pray for you to have that hope, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage.